This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner and Momenta Partners, and welcome to our Digital Leadership Series. In this series of conversations, we're highlighting some of the best and brightest minds and practitioners in the business as we focus on their journeys into digital transformation, what they learned, what their successes were, what the challenges were, along with lessons that are relevant for you today. We hope you enjoy our explorations and get value from it. And always, we look for your feedback and suggestions. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Momenta Partners' inaugural Digital Leadership Series. Today, we're featuring Guido Jure, who is the Chief Digital Officer of ABB, and he's also been a, a guest on our EDGE podcast. We're going to be discussing the dimensions of digital transformation, some of his insights and experiences, and look to dive into some best practices and and tips for those who are seeking to go down a, a similar path. So, Guido, thank you again for, for joining us at Momenta. You're welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So, I'd like to start with just a very broad question, which is, what does digital transformation mean to you? Well, I think for, for us at ABB, it means the digitalization of our offerings, so products and services that increasingly will have a, more and more of their value come from a digital component. It also means the transformation of our own capabilities, so the way we make our products, the way we sell our products, so pretty much us as a consumer also of more and more digital capabilities. And then I think it lastly also means a transformation in business models and culture. So it is a much it, it is a much broader uh, encompassing term that uh, <laughs> than than Internet of Things, of course. Yeah, so, because I think a lot of people see that primarily as a as a technology problem, which is how do we inject more connectivity and AI and all these latest buzzwords into the products. But interestingly enough, uh, two years ago when I was approached to uh, to this role at ABB, I remember that our CEO, I think every other sentence out of his mouth was about driving a culture change. And we can go more into what that means, but I think it's actually changing the way you do business is probably the more significant element of this whole digitalization and the digital transformation. That's That's great insight. When you look at change that's external to the organization, I mean, how how do you think about mapping potential impact on the business uh, and the organization and, and, and changes to the market itself? Well, so first, I think a little bit about the different technologies that are evolving and what impact they might have. And what I think is happening, especially now, compared to, like, let's say, the late 90s, in the late 90s, we had sort of two main technologies that were driving change. It was the internet and the web. And that was already pretty significant. But if you look at things today, 
take your pick. You've got AI, you've got blockchain, you've got augmented reality, virtual reality, you've got drone technologies. So we're sort of blessed with this cornucopia of technologies that are each evolving at an incredible rate. And what you first can start to do is to say, how do I, what's the rate of change in these technologies and where will they potentially impact our business? And if you just take one, because I know it sounds rather abstract, but if we take augmented reality, how that intersects with our business capabilities, for example, is that we have a lot of very sophisticated machines that we sell to customers, servicing and maintaining that equipment is a key challenge. So how do we do that? Well, with qualified people, but one of the ways which we project that expertise and augment that expertise in the field is by giving people augmented reality glasses and technologies so that as they're servicing a piece of equipment, they're guided through the right steps to take in the best and safest way. And that's a way in which we can take someone who has maybe less experience or who's trying to service a wide range of equipment and make them an expert by projecting remote expertise via augmented reality. So you have to take on the one hand this technology and what it can do. On the other hand, you say, what are the business capabilities and the business offerings that we have and imagine the intersection of those two. And that is a constant exercise. And of course, none of these technologies are static. They're all evolving. So you kind of have to say, well, there may be some limitations still today, but at the rate of change that we currently see, maybe next year or in two years' time, this will now be ready for prime time. I'd like to flip the script a bit. I mean, we were just, you know, as, as, as you look at what, what you, a company can offer, a company like ABB, for instance, plays in a lot of different industries. But looking from the standpoint of the customer, the customer experience and the customer journey, you know, how, how do you assess, you know, which, which customer journeys are, are most important uh, to uh, to your business and and to to you know more broadly to you know to the company. Yeah, so if we look at it from a customer perspective, you can first of all map out a customer life cycle, right? So how does a customer uh, learn that you even exist? choose among all the various offerings that are relevant to them. How do they finally get it? How do they deploy it? How do they maintain it and operate it and then optimize it? And then finally, how does it get retired and replaced over time? If you then map that whole customer lifecycle, you can start imagining what kind of digital capabilities you would need. So for example, on the choose part, early start of the early part of the lifecycle, it's digital marketing and e-commerce capabilities. If you then go to the deployment stage, you need digital twin, both in the digital product, the version of the product, how do you simulate this product before it gets deployed? How do you do the digital project, which is another form of digital twin, which is how do you encourage the collaboration in a digital space among all the people that need to deploy this? Then finally, how do you simulate the performance of this thing as it's deployed and compare that to its actual operation so you can move to predictive maintenance versus time-based maintenance schedules? How do you then do virtual commissioning? So you can say, well, what if we made this change and how would that affect the productivity of our plant or factory? And that's where you use, again, digital twin capabilities. Uh, and then lastly, when it comes time to replace it, how do you then plan for that migration? Again, using digital technologies to simulate that uh, cutover to the new technology. So you can walk through the customer lifecycle and then through each of those stages say, how do I measure up today in terms of using digital technologies to support that? And where do I want to invest for uh, evolving that tomorrow? 
that's really great insight. Uh, just to, a, a good way to a good framework to think about where where there are some some uh, you know sort of key key leverage points in in the in the customer relationship. But when you're looking at putting together a digital transformation initiative what what are some mm-hmm. of the the factors or our inputs uh, that are involved when you when you're looking to establish your goals and you know and at ultimately mapping out what you want to achieve through digitalization right so what we did first Ed, is we started by saying let's first of all, define the digitalization effort and my team's key goals in terms of three simple things. The first is we want to accelerate the digital transformation of our company's business units, and which means the products, the offerings, the capabilities, as we just discussed. So that we want to make it more strategic in terms of creating and capturing more customer value. It's not something we do because we think it's cool. <laughs> we do this because we believe that this is very important and valuable for our customers and will have benefit for us as a company. The second was we quickly identified one key enabler, which was we need a common digital platform, a set of tools, a set of technologies that all of our businesses could use to accelerate the deployment of their solutions. So if you want to make a connected robot or a smart circuit breaker, what is the cloud offering? What tools do you have at the gateway, at the device level, and yes, at the cloud to that can be reused across all these developments so that you don't have to reinvent that wheel every time? How does that platform also enable access to some of those key emerging technologies such as blockchain or AI or um, other capabilities. And then lastly, how do we drive this awareness of what we're trying to do with our customers and partners and ideally rally others to our cause? So there's this, um, this evangelization communication effort. So we defined those three priorities. What we then did is we said we can't do this just centrally in head office. This will only work if this really becomes internalized in each of our businesses. So one of the first things I did when I got here was I asked every business unit to appoint a digital leader, essentially my direct counterpart that we could work with. And they have their development teams, their product managers, their business development folks. So these became essentially my local correspondents in each of our businesses. You hit on a really interesting point, which is the uh, the importance of organizational sponsorship and leadership. Um, you know, how do you uh, ensure that that your digital leaders in in each division are uh, are empowered? And mm-hmm. also, you know, on the flip side, you know, how how do you you know create a level of accountability so that you can ensure that you know the the, the the company-wide mission is is really transmitted all the way to the uh, you know to the line level. Yes, no, that's a great point. So first of all, it it starts with choosing good people. So one of the things that we've done is, as time has gone by, in some cases we've had to make some changes. We've put in new people into these roles, and of course we had to make it look both inside and externally. Of course that the people in these digital roles had to be seen as these would be highly coveted roles. These are seen as roles where you can make a lot of impact because we needed to attract the best possible talent. If this is seen as sort of a dead end job where there's no prospects, it would be much harder to get the best people. So first of all, we had to say this is important. And that's that's actually been working well. We've attracted more and more people into these roles, both inside and outside. We can talk a little bit about staffing mix and, and what seems to be an ideal combination, but th- that was the first part. 
Then we defined some common metrics for success. We said, look, we want to track the success of our digital transformation in a consistent way. So even if you're in a, in a different uh, part of the organization, you still essentially are marching to the same beat and the same drum, so that's good. And then lastly, uh, we wanted to make sure that as we were driving these solutions that we had a, a regular cadence of customer outreach, pilot activities, initial project development so that teams can get more familiar with technologies. And we also measure things like external customer awareness of what we're doing, how they perceive ABB compared to others in terms of digital leadership. So anything that we could measure, but we recognize that you can't just measure the ultimate metric, which would be profitable growth, which is what every company wants. You need leading metrics that are internal in some cases, but also earlier in the cycle, because it may take some time for all these activities to manifest themselves into profitable growth. Yeah, that's a that's a topic I wanted to dive into a bit, which is the uh, the, the the different types of metrics that are relevant in the life cycle of digital initiatives. We just uh, were we just concluded our, our 4Q survey uh, of, of digital leaders and, and one of the findings that emerged is that uh, what we've seen is that in earlier stages, the, the metrics for success tend to be non-financial and a lot and, and a lot of cases mm -hmm. there are not even measurable metrics but yeah. over time as as there's a bit more maturity it moves toward financial metrics you know how do you assess what's appropriate at different stages of the digit digitalization journey uh, and do you have uh, you know are there are there ways that metrics end up being uh, tied back to the budget yeah, so that's a great uh, one of my my big. Uh, I'm a big admirer of Clayton Christensen, and he talks about how innovation, uh, how financial metrics can be toxic to innovation. I wouldn't maybe go quite so far, but the way that I try to think about that is that you need appropriate metrics for the stage you're in. So. What's easiest, especially for a mature business, is to say, well, show me show me revenue growth and, and show me margins. And so then, okay, that's fine. But that's sort of at the tail end of this. What are some of the earlier metrics? And I would say that, especially in the early stage, you want to measure momentum more than necessarily the actual quality of the output in the sense that it's very clear that if you don't establish momentum, you won't get that quality of financial result out the back end several quarters, years later. So initial momentum is about initial capability. So do you have an organization in place? How many people have you hired? Okay, then we have to talk about the quality of those people, but if you don't even have the people, then the quality of the conversation can't even begin. You also want to talk about your portfolio, like how many digital solutions do you currently have and how are they selling and then how much activity are you seeing or interest from customers. So you measure things like pipeline, you measure things like in your CRM, you can start tagging how many digital interactions are we having with customers versus standard non-digital interactions, meaning conversations where we talk about these digital offerings versus the uh, non-digital offerings that we may also be selling. So you measure at the appropriate stage these various things. And for example, we've measured things like the sales of digital enabled solutions. That's more of a mature metric. But I would also say we're measuring things like the number of devices connected to our platform, uh, the, the R&D investment in digital areas, the number of engineers we have working on software versus hardware, 
the number of people trained on digital. That's, again, a very, very early metric, where as we run internal webinars, how do we see in increasing adoption? Do, are people starting to register more and more for those courses and those webinars or not? Uh, in terms of our CRM, we track the digital interactions that we're having with customers and how that's growing and evolving. There's also another metric, Ed, which is a little bit more subtle, and it, it relates to the sales cycle, where one of the things we strongly believe is that digital conversations tend to become more naturally systems conversations as opposed to point products because quite a quite a lot what you're quite often what you're doing with digital technology is you're orchestrating you're coordinating you're doing that within a plant or a factory or across a supply chain and naturally as you now are having more of a extended enterprise conversation, more of a all of enterprise conversation, the level of seniority of the people that we have those conversations with goes up. So one of the interesting things we've started to look at in our CRM is to say, are we engaging more often now than before with the CXO level? And where are we in the life cycle of that customer's buying decision? So in a mature business, maybe you only ever get to meet the procurement department and you're responding to RFPs. With a digital conversation, what we're finding more and more is that before the RFP, there's an RFI, request for information, and even before that, there's often just a conversation. And those conversations increasingly are starting to happen at a CXO level. So what I really like is when I start to see things like, oh, the chief operating officer of one of the world's largest food and beverage companies has invited us to have a conversation on digital transformation for them. And that is something which I think is really nice because that doesn't translate into an order tomorrow. But what we have for the first time is early visibility to a customer's desire to do a significant transformation effort of their own. Are there ways to build a, a measure of fung fungibility into, into what you what you are uh, assessing or what you're measuring so that you're able to execute uh, course corrections and, and, and mm -hmm. be a, a bit more nimble in, in terms of uh, in, in terms of just tuning your process in as 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 you're ongoing in an ongoing way. Yeah, no, that's a great point. This, this idea of, of agility, the ability to take feedback and adapt. This is, of course, one, I think, key element of digitalization for a simple reason that in the industrial space, the markets that we serve, we're dealing with long life assets. We're dealing with transformers, motors, products that last for decades. This is the very opposite of what's happening in the consumer space where people are replacing things like their phones every 18 to 24 months. So in the industrial space, that long cycle process and as well, the significant risk associated with that execution. Like if you screw up your electrical uh, infrastructure in your factory, people could get electrocuted and could get hurt or worse. So there's a, there's a certain natural aversion to improvisation. Let's just try stuff. Let's just throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. Um, I would say sort of Mark Zuckerberg's early, early motto of, you know, move fast and break things doesn't go over well in the industrial space. So, on the other hand, in a digital area, customers do have, I think, a natural affinity and interest in trying things because this is all relatively new. And what we found is that 
there are some customers who say, look, until this is completely baked, established, proven with many of my competitors, don't come and talk to me. That's fine. But for everyone that says that, there's also an equal number of customers who are saying, you know what, I want to take some sensible risks. I want to do some rational experimentation. And I don't mind if your offering in this area is still evolving, is still something that could change over time. But I want to be part of that because by getting early access to it, I can shape it. And by being one of the first in the world to deploy it, I gain competitive advantage by doing that. And the key is, of course, to find those customers and then to adapt and evolve with them. And of course, the people who do that are probably not the same people who are trying to maximize availability and stability of an environment to four nines, five nines, six nines, and beyond of the mature part of that customer's infrastructure. And that's why, in terms of, that's one of the reasons why we talk about a culture change. It's not so much that there is a good culture and a bad culture. You almost need to be somewhat schizophrenic and incorporate these two aspects at the same time. You need to have part of the company continue focus on highly reliable and predictable deployments, while another part of the company is more agile, more adaptable, can course correct, and knows that not everything that will be tried will make it into production or, in fact, may even work. That ties nicely into Clayton Christensen's work on disruptive innovations where, of course, it it does highlight the the inherent challenges of of balancing disparate interests of a of a an, an innovative or, or disruptive technology and and also mm-hmm. ensuring that existing operations and customers are happy uh, and there are a number of different approaches certainly that I've seen that that are that have worked out to be successful in, including what people refer to as you know edge innovation or or having mm-hmm. you know, really discrete uh, uh, skunkworks or innovation labs. Uh, are there some best practices or uh, key principles that that come into play in, in your experience when when dealing with uh, you know larger larger industrial companies? Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, not only for industrial companies. I've done internal incubation also in my previous role as uh, uh, the head of IoT for for Cisco and. What I've learned from these various experiments is that I think edge, and of course, the the name of your podcast is, of course, Momenta Edge, but at the edge is where you get the best early sensing. So you get insights. But I would distinguish between sensing and execution. What some people also try to do is they do edge execution, meaning developing it in a remote location close to the customer, which in principle sounds good. However, you end up with a lot of stranded innovations because they tend to be suboptimal when it comes to resourcing, staffing, or just even getting the attention of the mothership, the head office. So you see a lot of these stranded skunk works at the periphery of any large company, things that just were tried, maybe even had one or two pilots, but never actually became mainstream. And I think you have to combine sort of edge sensing with more central execution. 
And I think there are a couple of ways to do that. One is to create dedicated incubation teams that uh, essentially whose mandate is to take some of that edge sensing, but then deploy it uh, closer to, to the center uh, with closer visibility to senior management. I think that's one way. I think another way is to do a potential spin out, which is that you start, but in order to get the necessary capital investment at some point, you set it up as a separate legal entity with its own equity structure and you sell some of those shares. We're starting to see examples of that happening with uh, GM and Cruise and uh, Alibaba and Alipay. So there are companies that are starting to explore this sort of spin-out uh, capability as a way of counteracting perhaps some of the internal antibodies that might otherwise snuff out these early ventures or these early activities and essentially give rise to what Christensen calls that innovator's dilemma. So I think, you know, the innovator's dilemma is is now uh, probably over 10 years old, and it's one of those books that is very seminal and has a lot of truths in it. But I do think companies are adapting and learning and creating new innovation models to to try to prevent the innovator's dilemma from becoming a curse. Yeah, it uh, it does bring out a great uh, a great point that the you know the you know in, innovation of course does tip does often run into uh, you know in in those internal antibodies. I think the mm -hmm. example of Walmart trying to launch their own e-commerce efforts unsuccessfully mm -hmm. several times, and then ultimately acquiring Jet.com as as a, really uh, that was on the you know the the fourth iteration. Ultimately, they had to go outside the the the, yes. the organization. But again, that you know there's you you certainly do lose quite a bit if you are working in a uh, in a, if if it's a skunk works or if it's independent and, and you don't necessarily have the, uh, the access to the particularly the collective knowledge of uh, of industry and you know process and technology that is so mm -hmm. specialized and so valuable in uh, in industrial firms um, I wanted to turn the to question to the the process of you know evaluating ideas uh, and and challenging them internally. Are there some mm -hmm. uh, some thoughts that you have about what is a uh, you know what are what are some best practices for a company that's now evaluating uh, you know a uh, you know going having that initial conversation uh, you know how do you right. you know how do you, how do, how do you figure out what you know where is the best uh, the the best approach and 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 deal with the uh, you know, the 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 challenge of so many choices. No, that's a, that's a great point, Ed, and that's one of the roles that my team plays. So one of the values that we bring to our divisions is that we act as sort of a natural internal sparring partner, personal trainer, if you will, for, for essentially strengthening their digital thinking so that they may have a set of ideas and they invite us to come in to help either give external points of view, bring in customer interactions, or just from the experience that we have as a team from having worked in other industries and, and using technology in different spaces. I think I think about this in a couple of ways. So the first is that there's almost like a natural progression of digital offerings, which I call sort of the Maslow hierarchy of IoT. You start with monitoring, you go to optimization, you go to software-defined products, more convergence, and then finally new business models. So there's almost like 
you can ask a logical question to say, in your digital portfolio, how many of them are still at level one? How many are up in level two? Because the implication is that the higher up you go in the stack, the more value you can create and the more value you can keep. So that's a natural, almost like a maturity model of how sophisticated, how advanced is this digital portfolio that you have. The second dimension is to really think about the impact of the technologies themselves, which is, are you taking full advantage of the cloud, of AI, of AR? And that's sort of a little bit of a technology in perspective, but certainly by moving certain applications to the cloud where we can now get data from multiple customers and deployments, we start creating potentially network effects. And as uh, you probably have covered in other podcasts, the power of platforms and network effects uh, can't be overestimated. So therefore, if we can latch onto one of those, that could be very powerful as well. The third dimension I always like to ask is to say, where's the unmet need? So in many companies, especially companies that have been around for a long time, like ABB for 130 years, uh, you have well-established customers and segments, you understand them well. But what you may not realize is that there's a whole unmet need in the market for solutions because today you're offering, while very good, maybe extremely high end and that there is a bottom of the pyramid approach to looking at a market by saying, where are people who would like some of this but need it to become dramatically simpler, dramatically easier, dramatically cheaper? Could we potentially use these innovative technologies to provide that to them? And so we naturally have these sort of three-dimensional conversations with our businesses as we test and explore their digital portfolios. Now, that's, a, that's again, a great insight. How do you ensure, you know, given that technology plays such a, such a pivotal role in digital transformation, uh, that there's appropriate level of you know, collaboration and cooperation between the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the information technology organization and the, the lines of business that may not, you know, may not necessarily be as, as up to speed on, on the potential or may not have as, as good a command of, on, the, uh, on the intricacies of, of information technologies. So we have three constituencies, if you will. On the one hand, there's clearly our business units, divisions, which are developing these products. They have their own R&D people, and in some cases, very up to snuff with what's happening in digital technology, sometimes not as much. The second uh, source of that potential information is our corporate research teams, which are essentially a team of about 700 people that are dedicated across material science, electrical science, but also computer science. So they are constantly doing evaluations of things like 5G or real-time systems or blockchain and bringing those key nuggets back to the businesses to say, have you thought about deploying this? There's an interesting capability you might not be aware of. And then the third is is my team itself. And my team is global, we're spread out, but we have the people that are the closest to the cutting edge of technology are sitting here where I'm based in Silicon Valley. And of course, we're blessed with the fact that there's so many interesting companies, large and small in the Valley that are really at the cutting edge of many of these areas. And so we bring those insights and those capabilities back as we interact with the businesses and develop their roadmaps and their thinking and their business strategies. So that sounds like a really effective approach to have that upstream collaboration so that 
when you get to the point of ideation uh, or or beyond ideation and, and into you know pilots and, and execution, uh, you it's it's already organically baked into the uh, in, into the into the vision the, that collaboration, but. Uh, on, on the flip side, I, I'm sure that you have experienced uh, some sorts of re- uh, resistance from existing mm-hmm. businesses and and risk. And, and how do you, you know, how do you think about managing you know both the, the business risk uh, and organizational challenges that that come from you know implementing you know potentially disruptive uh, digital strategies in you know within within a large business. Yes, so that's a great point. And let me start with sort of some of the key resistance areas and some of the objections that sometimes come up. So I would say that the first one, which I found a bit surprising, is that, and this didn't come so much from people inside the company, but for example, the investment community that is looking at us as a, as an investment. One of the things that some of these investment bankers were saying was, why do you want to do all this work in extending the life of these assets by doing better, say, predictive maintenance, for example? Because if you make a motor or a circuit breaker or a transformer last longer, then there's less need by your customers to replace them, and then your overall sales will go down. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective because it kind of almost seemed to suggest that, you know, it's kind of the analogy of like, if you make my car last longer, I don't need to replace it as often. And of course, that assumes that the whole that the whole world is essentially a zero sum game that there's a fixed amount of budget that we can actually address and what we're actually doing with many of these digital technologies is we're expanding into adjacent budgets we're expanding into new areas tapping into costs tapping into efficiencies that were actually either internal to those customers meaning I had a whole maintenance crew who basically was doing time-based maintenance. If you actually now say that I can use that more effectively, I don't have to have as many maintenance technicians. So therefore, I'm willing to spend more on potentially your products and your service offerings than before, because I'll make up the savings on these internal inefficiencies. So, so part of the key thing about digital is that it helps to cross some of these budget boundaries. So this allows you to expand, but it could create as a result, almost like a perverse incentive not to do digital because people feel like, oh, hang on, wait a minute. You know, when products actually blow up and degrade, that's actually a good thing because it leads to replacements. And so that was one sort of, I would say, external pressure or resistance to change. And that's one. The second resistance to change or, or potential resistance is that when I alluded to it a bit earlier, when you're dealing with things that specifically can be life-threatening, mission-critical, uh, potentially have a huge impact. If you think about a transformer that could explode or uh, people could get electrocuted, availability, stability, safety is all. Therefore, if you want us to come in and start doing some tinkering, that's probably not the, fra- the first place to start. You want to be doing your tinkering in, with digital technologies in things that are probably somewhat more forgiving and a little bit less mission critical if you know that it's going to be early in this process with early technologies. So therefore, I, but I call that sort of working on the wrong target. If you're trying to reinvent products and technologies that have been deployed over decades and made reliable over decades, you can only do things probably there in a more incremental fashion. If you want to do things that are bigger and bolder, 
you probably don't want to start there. So that could be one source of resistance. The third could be customers. So who is more willing to embrace something innovative and, and new? And there I would tip my hat to Jeffrey Moore because in the crossing the chasm theory, he calls about, he basically describes the gorillas and the chimps. The established big customer who is number one in their industry has less of an incentive to embrace new things because they potentially have more to lose. Whereas the number two or three or four in the market uh, is willing to try things because they would like to become number one. And they might see this technology innovation as a way to do a bit of an end run around the incumbent, the established larger player. So when we as a team go and work with our businesses and say, can you introduce us to some customers? There's a natural inclination to take us to the biggest and their best customer because they know them well. And ironically, we may actually want to go to them, but later and start with customers they may not know nearly as well, that are maybe also a little bit smaller and start there. So that's a natural source of potential resistance as well. I'd like to just expand on that point a bit, given that ABB has, has articulated, uh, I think, um, quite eloquently the coming shift in transportation from you know internal combustion engines to electric and uh, autonomous vehicles and that 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 will drive an impact it will impact how uh, you know electric grids are are architected there's an enormous amount of change uh, business mm-hmm model change involved with that. And I'd love to get just your thoughts of, of some of the lessons and the principles um, that we've been talking about in digitalization, you know, how that, how that applies, uh, you know, not, not, not to the whole ecosystem, but, you know, to, to, to some of the aspects of, of this, this big shift away from, you know, traditional, uh, traditional, you know, gas powered cars to, you mm-hmm. know, a vision, a vision of, uh, you know, autonomous fleets of, of self-driving cars. Well, that's a great one. I think this you're you're right. This transition almost to a whole new architecture, if you think about it, because you're talking about this internal combustion architecture, which is involving oil companies and gas stations and distribution and automotive companies. This is being reinvented. And of course, by a whole set of different players, you've got the utility companies, you've got private enterprises, people setting up charging networks and the whole lot. So, so on the one hand, we, we promote this change by sponsoring ABB Formula E. So this is quite exciting. It's visible. It's very high end, lots of innovation. We think that Formula E is going to overtake Formula One in terms of innovation and progress, uh, because Formula One technology is a sort of plateaued and there's not a whole lot more that can be done there. So that's one part is you, you make it fun, you create some sizzle, you create some excitement. However, the real work then has to begin in terms of creating and filling out all elements of this architecture. So let me just use one example. If you want to electrify the trucks that are being used by delivery companies, just to take one segment, which is not passenger cars, but just delivery vans, you've got the UPSs and the FedExes of the world who are being pressured by local governments to clean up their trucks as they enter cities, you know, dense downtown urban environments. But they need to now know how they can charge hundreds of trucks. And each truck has a big battery and therefore could consume as much as essentially a large supermarket. So if you have 100 trucks coming home every day (laughs) to to be charged, you're going to place a huge load on the grid. 
So then we work with the grid companies and say, all right, how do we now start to create an infrastructure that can flex and adapt? And for the grid companies, in some ways, they're quite excited by this because they say, wow, we can essentially tap into a whole new revenue stream operating these charging networks, at least in some cases. But it's also going to potentially place a huge load on the grid. And therefore, we have to deal with volatility of demand and where is all this power going to come from? And we need to talk about storage of energy behind the meter and the coordination through microgrids. So it's this, this orchestration of an entire ecosystem with companies that make trucks, companies that operate trucks, to the utility companies that are involved in providing the grid, to uh, perhaps a whole bevy of small software companies that are going to be providing various complementary solutions. It's a, it's a fascinating dance that has to get coordinated. And this is what I think is a great expression of the power of digital, because it's really the transformation of an entire industry. And we see this ad not only in mobility, we see the same thing happening with uh, food and water and energy itself. So uh, I've talked about this a little bit in the past where I basically described this as we need to change our planetary operating systems because the way we provide food, water, energy, transportation needs to get reinvented and the digital web is a key enabler of that. Now that's uh, it's, that's a that's a great explanation, and it and it really is just remarkable how how broadly we're, we'll we'll see change come over in in, in coming years. Uh, I just want to touch on uh, you know any common mistakes or uh, mm-hmm. you know, misperceptions that you see organizations make early on uh, in in the process of of launching digital initiatives. No, I, I, I see a few, and of course, we've also made a few, so maybe I'll share both the things we've done as well as what I see others doing. But I would say first and foremost, it shouldn't be seen as something that's merely cosmetic. It's not a lick of paint on an old thing, uh, although it's tempting to start with that and just say, look, we're digital too. I also think that looking at this as primarily how do we adopt as many of these advanced technologies as possible is also suboptimal. I think that's where you're going to have little enduring change. I think you really have to look at this as a full reinvention of your business over time. But you can't do that as a revolution because you can't stop serving the customers you have today. You can't stop selling the products which many of those customers find very good for their businesses today. You have to do this in an evolutionary path. The other mistake I think that uh, people make is that they uh, hire either exclusively from within or exclusively from without. And I think both extremes don't work. If you hire only outsiders, you get organ rejection. The rest of your organization just doesn't assimilate them. And if you only hire from within, you're not going to get enough of that new thinking and technology understanding and a bit of a new perspective that you also need. So one of the things that I find very surprising is that whether it was in my previous roles doing internal incubation or this role at ABB, somehow I've always ended up with about a 50-50 split of people in my team that are both from the inside as well as from the outside. I think it's also recognizing that expectation management is probably much more important than even, in some sense, quality of execution. I think quality of execution can happen and it's not as mysterious as somehow people make it out to be. But what can catch you every time is a mismatch in expectations. So one of the one of my favorite expressions is uh, 
any sufficiently advanced technology being indistinguishable from magic. <laughs> That's from Arthur C. Clarke. And ironically, for people who don't know very much about digital, they can expect magic, especially when you start throwing around terms like blockchain and artificial intelligence. And then you fall into this expectation curse, which is either people expect this stuff to be magic today, or on the other extreme, they don't expect this stuff to work at all. And one of the key things that is important to remember, especially with technology, where that technology is today is much less important than its rate of change. So for example, battery technologies are improving in terms of power density by 12% per year. So if you're skeptical about the migration towards electric vehicles, just wait a little while because it's going to be the cheapest car you can drive and it'll be the most reliable car you can drive. So how do I know that? Because you project that curve forward and you look and see what that does when it intersects with the price of an internal combustion engine car, which is just a short uh, number of quarters or years away from where we are now. If you then do the same with looking at things like the quality and the improvements we're seeing in AI technologies, we can't yet hand over the keys to a driverless car today. However, we also, I think, probably expect a little bit too much from that technology. And if we instead reframe it as we don't expect full autonomy, but we're moving towards autonomy. And what we plan to have are humans who can intervene when the car finds itself in a pickle and it says, I don't quite know what to do. Then I think we're only about a year or two away from that getting deployed in some cities around the US. So I think expectation management is the biggest problem. And the key lesson learned that if you don't set those expectations, they will be set for you. <laughs> and then you will be on either side of this sort of chasm of either nothing will work or why isn't it all working perfectly already? So I think those are some of the key key lessons learned. No, that's, those are great insights, and it's uh, timely that you're talking about cost curves because Tesla has just announced that they want to drop the price of their mother, the list price of their Model 3 from 45000 to $35,000, which puts mm -hmm. it squarely in the, uh, in the sweet spot of, of new car prices. And uh, another interesting point, I think, that uh, alluding, alluding to, I was just uh, listening to a friend of mine speaking at, a, at an event uh, this week, and and he, he made this comment that evolution and revolution are many times the same. It's just what differs is the rate of change. So, yes. I, and, and I think your point about expectations, uh, those expectations do need to be calibrated to that, to that rate of, to that expected rate of change. Yes. And we see that in the industrial world in particular where, in terms of adopting digital technologies, many of our customers and the industries they're in are still relatively early in terms of technology adoption curve. And the size of their economies and their markets is massive. So when they start to move, when they start to, to actually start embracing this, I think we will be amazed at just how big that's going to get. But in the short term, you may see, you may see not a lot of change. I think we will tend to 
underestimate that change in the long term, as Bill Gates usually says. I think this is where this will come to surprise us. And, and the drivers are not because it's nice to have. We need to get away from carbon emissions in terms of our industrial economy. We need to go towards renewable energy generation. For that, we need to have energy storage as a key component. We need to go towards much more productive manufacturing if we're going to boost the wages of blue-collar workers. So there's all these main economic environmental drivers. So the, the, the need to do so is clear. I think what is now uh, being built is the capability to do that, and then how we drive that rate of change so that we can't simply shut things off and say, we'll be back in a couple of years with a new thing. We have to do this while we continue to operate the modern economy that we all rely upon. Absolutely. It's, uh, we, have to, we have to manage those disruptive dynamics in, in, in every aspect of the economy. So, um, well, it's, this has been an amazing conversation, Guido, and, and I just, I just want to uh, wrap up by asking you, you know, just a final question. If there, was, if there was something that you wished you knew when you were starting out the digitization <laughs> journey, uh, or, or if there was a piece of advice that you would share uh, you know, fr- from what you've learned and, and, and maybe anything that you might have done differently, you know, what, what would that be? I would say that in general, if I look at regrets, I would say, could I have gone faster or did I go too fast? Many times I would say I probably could have gone faster on certain things. So it's not that the wheels are flying off, that that's the problem. The problem is usually I was maybe a little bit too conservative and could have gone even faster. Uh, the key thing to, to do, which I, I think we did do, which is good, is continue to have strong CEO and CXO support. So without strong support from the top, none of this can happen because change is hard. And I would say that probably continuing on an ongoing basis to manage and set expectations is probably about a third of the role of the chief digital officer. <laughs> This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners, with an episode of our Digital Leaders series. Please check our website at momenta.partners for archived versions of prior podcasts and webinars, as well as resources to help with your digitization journey. 